So what we want to do right now is we're going to shift gears. We're going to open up the Word of God. We're in a series called Intimacy with God in the Psalms. And uh, this is particularly the first half of the summer is intimacy with God in a broken world and just acknowledging the reality that every aspect of this world is tainted and broken with sin. And uh, how do we stay near to God? How do we please God? How do we bring, bring, bring God glory despite the fact that we live in a completely dysfunctional world? It is possible. It is possible. And so what I want to do is I want to pray for our time in the Word, open up to Psalm 101, and we will jump in. Father, again, I uh, come to you and we come to you uh, under... Um, the authority of your word and under the authority of Jesus Christ. And we want to please you. We want to bring glory to you. We want to know you. And God, we want to be near to you. Uh, Lord, uh, our desire is not to be controlled by um, the sin that is inside of us. Our desire is not to be controlled by the ways and thoughts of this world. Our desire is not to be influenced by people who don't love you. But God, our desire is to be influenced ultimately by the word of God and by Jesus Christ and your people who love you and are trying to live for you. And so, Lord, as we look at Psalm 101, as we look at just the tension of, of living in an evil world and what it means to be intimate with you, as we look at King David's vow as a king, Lord, may we desire the things he desires. Lord, I know that unless our hearts want these things, um, our wills will not do it for, for very long. So, Lord, may you do a miraculous heart transformation in us. Lord, as we look to the people that are around us, as we look at those who influence us, as we look at our friends and our co-workers and our family, God, I pray that you would protect us, Lord, from unrighteousness, from unholiness, God, from anything that is not pleasing to you. And Lord, by your spirit, will you conform us? And so, Lord, we submit this time to you. We submit ourselves under you and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine that you are uh, taking a new leadership role over people. And uh, maybe you went from being in a non-leadership role, a non-management role over people, and now you're transitioning. I'll give you a few examples of this. Uh, Maybe you just uh, got home from the hospital and you are holding your new son or daughter. And all of a sudden, you are responsible for somebody other than yourself. Or maybe um, you just got promoted in work and now you're managing a team of people. And you are responsible. People are looking to you for leadership and for direction and for for guidance. Or as um, Amanda and Jake experienced here yesterday, uh, you're standing and you are giving these vows to another man or to a woman. And all of a sudden, after um, the pastor says, I pronounce you your husband and wife, and then hopefully the pastor signs the marriage certificate, uh, you realize this is official. I'm to, to some extent responsible for you. I mean, these are, this is a huge, huge, huge leadership um, privilege, but it's also a challenge. I remember when uh, I got married, Joe married us, and it was uh, the day before, it was so crystal clear to me, it was just filled with what kind of husband am I going to be? Like, I know a lot of my weaknesses, and since then they have been magnified by a thousandfold, and I'm very aware of the things I'm not, and then since I got married, I realized how much more the things I'm not. Uh, And I remember uh, wondering, am I going to be a good husband? I remember holding uh, our daughter Ellie for the first time. What kind of dad am I going to be? I really actually wanted to fast forward 20 years and meet myself 20 years from now so I could have a conversation with me. And me, 20 years, I'd be 48 at the time, would look at me at 28 holding my first child and say, here's all the areas you're going to mess up. Oh, by the way, don't do that, right? Uh, here, Here are some of the repercussions if you really mess up. But sadly, we can't meet ourselves 20 years down the road. 
Uh, but there's a question. Every time we take new leadership, there's a question here. And this question uh, is underneath this text as well. And uh, anytime you walk into a situation where somebody's looking to you, here's, here's what it is. Am I going to succeed? Right? How many of you want to get up, uh, say something to your wife, like, I vowed to you that I'll give you my everything, and, th- and then be an utter and total failure? Who wants to stand before their employees and fail? Maybe you started a business, right? And you're thinking to yourself, is this thing going to work? Am I going to succeed? Am I going to fail? I mean, how many of you really want to be a failure? Nobody? I was expecting somebody to raise their hand. No, I'm kidding. Uh, am, I go- am I going to succeed? And I'll tell you, for me, that question um, um, haunts me at times. Will I be a failure? What will take me down if something were going to take me down? And in my experience, uh, the source of most people's failure is not incompetence. For some people, it is genuine incompetence. For most people, the source of their failure are a lack of integrity and a lack of faithfulness. I mean, just look around you. The people who fail, the people who fall, the people who lose their marriages, the people who lose their jobs, the people who lose uh, the reputation of other people, what usually gets them? It's a lack of integrity or a lack of faithfulness. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the person who loses to a lack of integrity and to a lack of faithfulness. I don't want to be that person. I know that you don't want to be that person. But we are always one decision away from messing everything up. My, uh, my teacher of pastoral ministry, Winfred Neely, some of you know him, he'd always say, you're always one step away from disqualifying yourself from ministry. You're one decision away from doing that. And it, and it just put this healthy fear in me. I need to be wise about the decisions I make. And I want to be a man who has integrity. I want to be a man who is faithful. Now, uh, enter Psalm 101. King David most likely, and I think there's some evidence in the text, is writing this at the very beginning of his kingship, okay? And I want you to imagine at the age of 13, some prophet comes to you and says, oh, by the way, you're going to be the king of Israel. And for 17 years, you're in waiting, and, the, and the, the present king is hunting you down, trying to kill you. You have 17 years of trial and tribulation. And then one day, the day comes when you are finally being installed as the king publicly. And David, I love, gives us this just amazing insight into his heart. And I have this hunch that David wrote this right at the beginning of his kingship. And it's, uh, it's said by some commentators that this psalm was used as a coronation psalm, read or, or, or spoken by the king being coronated um, as a vow of the kind of king he was going to be. And I imagine David sitting here and thinking to himself, what kind of king do I want to be? And really, you get to the core of a man who truly was a man after God's own heart. He truly was a man who was seeking integrity and faithfulness. He truly was a person who wanted to go the distance. And he saw a long line of judges and kings and leaders fail miserably before him. And he's thinking, I just, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. And anybody here who has any kind of leadership responsibility whatsoever, any kind of ministry position, responsibility in your home, by the way, if you're a mom or your dad, this applies to you. This applies to you. Thankfully, nobody can take away your title as mom or dad. But don't you want to be a mom or dad when your kids move out and your daughter or your son get married? They look at you and say, you had integrity and you were faithful. You had integrity and you were faithful. And these are the two attributes that David says, when it's all said and done and you look at my reign over Israel, I want to be known as a man of integrity and faithfulness. Now, uh, before we get into the text. I'm going to give you the application right up front, okay? So the first application is exactly what we talked about. If you have any leadership whatsoever in your life, this is for you, 
Okay? Uh, this is a psalm that I've come back to consistently whenever I think about my position as a husband or my position in this church as the pastor. Uh, I, think that I, I think about, I want to be a man who when I leave, die, retire, whatever happens, I want to have a positive reputation, not for my own sake, but because I want to please the Lord and I want to leave a positive legacy, right? But here's the second application that I've come back to consistently with this text. Uh, whenever I teach on friendship, Whenever I teach on uh, the people who are influencing you and surrounding you, this is the text that I come back to. And uh, every once in a while, I'll go back to this and I'll say, who are the people who are closest to me? And do they measure up with the kind of people David says that if he's going to succeed are the kind of people that are surrounding him? Now, this is going to be a really practical message for y'all. This is not going to be a deep theological message. This is going to be something where you have to go home and ask yourself some questions. Who is influencing me? Because the people who influence you are going to affect whether or not you are faithful and whether or not you have integrity. Okay? The people you surround yourself will determine whether or not you have integrity and you are faithful. And for David, he understands this. And so he starts off and says, if I'm going to be a good king, here's what I want to have, okay? But then here's how I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it because the people I surround myself with are going to make sure that I get there. And we're going to see a terrible, terrible lesson in this psalm. We're going to see a psalm that was written by an incredibly well-intentioned young man who ended up failing miserably at the very things that he wanted to see happen. That's so sad. I've written many, many, many a journal where I've wrote about my dreams and my ambitions. And the last thing I want to do is get to the end of my life and say all the dreams and the ambitions that I wrote down, all the things that I want to be and the things I want to be remembered for are gone because of a few stupid decisions that I chose because I didn't surround myself with the right people and I did not pursue intimacy with Jesus Jesus Christ. And it breaks my heart that one day that could be me. Because I'm only 31 years old, and I've got hopefully a long life ahead of me. And some of you are maybe halfway through your life or a little bit longer, but as we even learned from Moses, it's not too late to throw it all away. So I hope and I pray and I know that there's just this common sentiment of any believer in Jesus Christ that you don't want to be that person. Amen? And so let's listen to what David says. Let's take this warning uh, very seriously, and let's pursue and love and value the things that God says the value here. Verse 1. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. Now, I just want to get this tangent off of my brain, okay? You value what you sing about. You value the music you listen to. The the things that you sing about are important to you, which is why we choose the words we sing about very, 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 very carefully in this church. Okay? Uh, you are deeply, deeply affected by the kind of music you listen to. So primarily young people, I just want to address you. Beware. Watch what you intake into your brain because it affects you drastically. It, just go and read the lyrics to some of the songs that you were listening to that are not Christian songs. Not all of them are totally evil, but I'm telling you, the more and more I'm reading lyrics, Brian will tell you that every night I'm going to bed and reading lyrics to songs recently, and I go and I'm like, you got to hear this. This is absolutely insane that people would write these kind of lyrics. I'm just telling you right now, it affects you, it affects you, it affects you. If you want to preserve a life of integrity and faithfulness, if you want to preserve a life that is intimate with God, you will need to protect what you take in. Uh, side thought, if in a couple days, Monty's message this morning in the Equip Hour on entertainment is going to be up in the internet. Go download it and listen to it. Listen to the discussion. It was phenomenal. Great job, Monty. Got right to the core of what entertains us and why and how it deeply, deeply affects us. So back to the point. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. And steadfast love, as this Hebrew word has said, and this has to do with the covenantal, loyal, faithful love that God has for his people. Now, has said is not like, 
Oh, I love you. I feel so much for you. Hesed is not, I love pizza. Hesed is this, I am devoted to you. I am loyal to you. Come hell or high water, you can't get away from me. I am yours. Hesed is what's supposed to happen when a husband and wife look at each other and say, I do. I'm giving you my Hesed no matter how terrible you become, no matter how ugly you become, no matter how skinny or fat you become. I'm here for you. I'm yours. I'm Hesedding you, and that's it. Okay? That's, that, that's Hesed. Okay? And then justice is what he also wants to sing about. And justice is the sense of right and wrong and calling right and wrong what right and wrong is and then putting an accurate punishment to violations of right and wrong. Do you get that right? Uh, and so our sense of justice comes from the word of God. I call good what God calls good in the word. And I call wrong what God calls wrong from the word of God. And if God says to discipline in a certain way from the word of God, when justice, isn't, justice is disciplining the way God says you're supposed to do it. And so David says, at the beginning of my administration, the beginning of my kingship, I have this huge, ginormous responsibility in front of me. And here's what I value because I sing about what I value. Here are the things that I want to define my administration to the day I die. I want God's covenantal, faithful, loyal love to be what defines me. And I want justice. I want justice. And not some arbitrary form of justice, not some random sense of justice where I choose right and wrong, but justice, we'll see in this text, it aligns with the word of God, the Torah, the law, the way. You will see that this is the kind of justice he wants. Now, if you have a leader over you, okay, would you rather have a leader who wants to see the people that he leads see in him God's faithful, loyal love and, the, and somebody who lives up to the word of God is fair and just? I mean, don't you want that in a boss? I mean, some of you have bosses who don't love you in any way, shape, or form, right? And they have no regard for justice according to the word of God at all. At all. Some of you have had the privilege, the privilege to work for a Christian boss, uh, and that privilege has been that boss actually loves you because you were created in God's image and God finds you valuable, so he finds you valuable or she finds you valuable. And then when things didn't go right, they tried to live and work according to God's word and they were just and they were fair. They paid you fairly, they, fairly, they treated you fairly. And sadly, some of you may have worked for a Christian who was not loving and was not just but was stingy or mean or selfish. But those are sadly uh, the exceptions and not what we want to see from Christian bosses. But some of you are managers and bosses and, and the, the expectation is that people in you should see the values of justice according to God's word and integrity uh, of heart and love for the people that you're leading. I mean, do your employees see love and justice, love and fairness? I hope so. I hope that the people who work for me, um, Kyle and Bethany work for me, I hope they see that I love them dearly. I would do anything for them. And I hope they sense that I'm just and I'm fair in the way I go about my interactions with them. I hope that the people who interact with me in leadership, that I get to lead sense that I love them because I do. Uh, I may not love always in the ways that you need to be loved, but I want to love, you know? And one of the reasons we put elders and deacons and ministry directors in place is because we believe that they're people who love and they love God's word and they love God's people. And that's a powerful combination when you put those two things together. Now, imagine David sitting here saying, God, you are loving and you are just, and I want to reflect in my leadership your character. And this is, this is an amazing intention, and I wish, I, I just wish that David would have followed through. Now, in verse 2, he says this, I will ponder the way, and for David, the way, by the way, is the word of God, specifically the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes 
anything that is worthless. So now we're going to see the personal side of integrity and the public side of integrity because if you're ever going to leave publicly, if you think that your private life does not reflect on your personal life or vice versa, you are terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. Okay? Because part of leadership is people do start to see who you are. They'll start to interact through your phone calls with your husband or your wife or your kids. They will start to see your habits, your inconsistencies, and your personal lack of integrity, your personal lack of love, your personal lack of faithfulness always, I think always, will eventually inevitably bleed into your leadership wherever you're at, whether it's at work or at church or, or in your home. And so David says, you know what? As I start my administration, as I start my kingship, I want to be somebody who ponders God's word. I know that what I think about, what I sing about, affect the way I think, affect the things I value. And so he's like, you know, I need to be in the word of God. And how many psalms did David write about the word of God and the place and the role of the word of God in his life? And I, I just share with you, we've talked about this extensively. If you think you're going to have intimacy with God apart from spending consistent time in his word you are totally wrong totally wrong totally wrong if you think that you are going to have an intimate relationship with God void of engaging him through his word you're missing missing out and if you are not in the word of God and you think you have intimacy let me tell you it's like two percent of what it could be and should be and I challenge you to pour into God's word to study and to know it and you're going to watch your intimacy with the Lord increase exponentially and anybody here who has spent time in the Word of God consistently, say amen. Amen? I mean, you know it and you experience it, but it takes faithfulness and discipline to be able to do that. I will ponder the way, the, the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? We're going to address that in a minute. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. And we talked about in the first uh, message on Psalms, integrity is the alignment of our wants, our desires, our words, our ways, the things we do in the Word of God. You take one of those out of the equation, you lose integrity, okay? And it's not enough just to say, I'm going to do the right thing and to not have God work on your heart and make your heart want the right thing. And so part of integrity is David wants integrity from the heart, from his gut, from his soul. I don't want to just be somebody who's content to say, you know, My heart wants evil things, but I'm just not going to do it. I want to say, God, work in my heart, do some heart surgery, get my heart to a place where I'm not just having to do behavior modification to do the right thing every time, but I'm doing the right thing because my heart is genuinely wanting to do the right thing, right? This is hard. I want to say this also. Unless you're pondering the way that is blameless, the word of God, your heart will not be transformed to want the things that are blameless. Integrity will not be a heart condition if you are not consistently pursuing God through the word of God. Because for David, integrity of heart and pondering the blameless way go hand in hand. Because one affects the other and the other affects the other. Now, this is, again, just a powerful statement. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I mean, I love this. Anything. Fast forward 20 years. David is sitting at the top uh, uh, of his house, supposed to be in battle, sees this beautiful naked woman, says, I want her. Some commentators say, because the Hebrew text allows us, that he uh, called her to himself and raped her, has sex with her, impregnates her, kills her husband, and tries to cover it up. Now, rewind 20 years. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I mean, these these are the statements that after you've done that 20 years later, you want to say, could I meet myself 20 years ago? Could I have a conversation with myself? Because there was this moment, right, which was 
the culmination of a series of smaller moments. There is this moment where all Hades break loose. Sorry, all Sheol broke loose. All right, just thinking Old Testament, okay? Uh, and, and you did it. You, you chose it. David, younger David, young man, you're going to choose this. You're going to stop pondering the way that's blameless. You're going to stop surrounding yourself with people who fear God more than they fear you. I mean, that's a scary thing to be surrounded by people who fear you more than they fear God. And that's part of the nature of some positions of leadership, especially the higher up you go, especially in the corporate world. Uh, people are afraid of you. They're afraid of you because you hold the strings to their life. You can fire them. You, can, you have a lot of leverage with them. But you know what? More than I want to fear my boss, I want to fear my God. Because if I fear my boss more than I fear God, I will compromise. I will do things that please my boss, but they may not please the Lord. I think for high school students, this is junior high too, this is one of the most uh, important messages. You need to fear God more than you fear people at school. You need to fear God more than the idiots at school who don't love God, who hate God, and are going to be described very well here in just a couple verses. And as long as you fear them, you will be quiet when you need to speak up. You will let um, horrendous things happen to weaker people when you should step in and intervene. And you will not proclaim the gospel because it is not cool, it is not popular, and they will not like you. But when you fear God more than you fear stupid people, you are able to do the right thing, and sometimes it means loss, and, but... I'd rather please God a hundred times over and lose everything I have and everything that is valuable to this world. I'd rather please God. And again, as I say that, I've said this to you guys many times, my head says that and there are days where my heart has to run up to that statement because my heart is not always there. But I'm praying, God, make that my, make that my heart condition. Make that the desire of my heart to want to please you more than I want to please the people who are around me. I mean, this statement is just a solemn solemn warning. I mean, you look at this, and if you were to read this, uh, David came to you and says, look what I wrote. You bowed down. Wow, David, you are a man after God's own heart. But we get to read this like 1,500 years later. No, 2,500 years later. And uh, 3,000 years later, I'm counting up in my head. I'm like, what year is this? 3,000 years later. And we have context. We have the word of God. And it's like, wow, that's a daunting statement. I cannot read that statement without reading Bathsheba uh, and so many other circumstances of David's life. And then in the middle of this, in the, at the very middle of verse 2, he says an interesting statement, when will you come to me? Now, I, I want to talk about what it means to come to God and God to come to us. In the New Testament, the way the Bible talks about our relationship with God, it goes like this. Um, God comes to us. God intervenes in our life. God is pursuing me. God is intervening in my life. And there is a sense in which we do come to God. But the primary way of talking about God is, God, when will you come to me? God, intervene in my life. God, save me. Okay? The way the Old Testament describes coming to God is actually very different. It talks about it like this. I'm going to go up to God, okay? Because God is generally up on a mountain like Moses, or he is on the mountain of Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem's like a little mountain, right? So when people would come to see God, they would go up to God. But David is saying something very interesting here. David is saying, God, when will you come to me? And here's what I think this means. I think it means that for David... The Ark of the Covenant, you're thinking, where did he pull the Ark of the Covenant out? The Ark of the Covenant is a centralized, focused place of God's very presence. And there is a time in David's administration where the Ark of the Covenant was not with him. And what's very interesting is this, is that when David becomes king in 2 Samuel 5, uh, there's this whole portion about his, him, him being coronated king. And the very next thing is he goes to battle with the Philistines. And do you know why he goes to battle with the Philistines? Because they have the Ark of the Covenant. 
And his first agenda, his first priority is, God is not here. I need to get God over here. God, when are you going to come to me? God, the Ark of the Covenant, the focus of your presence is not here. And I love how David, when he takes leadership, he looks out and he says, what are all the things that need to be addressed? And the first thing that he addresses is the fact that the Ark of the Covenant is not there. This is like the first major hurdle that he has to overcome. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 6, right, he defeats the Philistines in 5 and they bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. A little trip up here and there, a guy touches the Ark of the Covenant, he dies. Um, So don't touch the Ark of the Covenant, I guess, if you see it. But um, anyways, uh, but his priority, number one, is get God's presence here. I need God with me because if God's not with me, I'm not going to be blessed. And I love how David, for an old covenant understanding, understands that intimacy with God is so important and he wants God right where he's at. And some of you will take a leadership position. You will take some position at work or in church and there will just be some huge deficiency, huge lack of integrity. And it's so big and it's so glaring that you can't do anything. Nothing will succeed unless these things are resolved. For some of you, you look in your own personal life and you're thinking, wow, like if I'm going to be intimate with God, there is this huge missing arc in my life and I need to go get it and resolve this issue because unless I resolve this one issue or these two issues, the rest of the stuff isn't going to happen. And so for David, he's like, the ark's missing, I'm going to go get the ark. Because if I want to, if I want to walk according to God's word, if I want to have integrity and be blameless, like I need to have this near me because this is part of what the law demands. And so immediately for David, he's like, we're not in obedience to God. The Philistines have God's presence. We're going to get it, and we're going to set this thing right, and we're going to build this administration on God's word, on obedience, on faithfulness, on integrity, and we're going to go in the right direction. I love this definition I heard this week of godliness. Godliness is long obedience in the same direction. Godliness is long obedience in the same direction. Let me substitute this. Integrity is long obedience in the same direction. Faithfulness is long obedience in the same direction. God, when will you come to me? And it was about seven years into his administration when they finally got the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Now, verses 3 to um, 8, minus verse 6, talk about the public side of his ministry. These are the kind of people I will not surround myself with. And so again, I want you to look at this in two ways. Who is, admit, who is uh, uh, affecting and influencing your leadership, but who is also uh, influencing and affecting your personal life? So uh, I think one of the most beneficial things to do is to look at your friends, and I want you to say, are my friends, are the people who influence me and affect me, are the people whom I want to please these kind of people, or are they people who uh, are faithful and have integrity? In verse 3, he says this, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Now the first vice, the first kind of person that uh, we should not let cling to us or affect us or influence are those, I'll translate this and and, and apply it to the 21st century for Christians. Uh, It's those who claim the name of Jesus Christ and have no regard for his word in their personal or private lives. They're people who just say they're Christians, right? Or maybe they were even walking with Jesus Christ at one time and now they just live a life that is in complete disobedience to God's word. Maybe they're called a backslider or somebody who's walked away from the Lord. Uh, But the kind of people who are claiming the name of Jesus Christ and living in absolute debauchery and living against God's word, these are the kind of people that you need to be careful of. People who claim the name of Jesus Christ and yet do not and refuse to live according to his word, it's a precarious thing. So kids, when you guys go to school, you need to watch out and be very careful about the people who claim Jesus' name and yet refuse to live up to that. And number two, perverted people. 
people who don't just do evil, right? But people who do evil to a degree that we, we don't even like talking about. Uh, I think in school, what's so interesting is I went to an all-boys Catholic high school. It was like Lord of the Flies. Uh, and you put them in a room without a teacher, and somebody was getting mocked. Somebody was getting hit. The most vile and disgusting conversations were happening. I mean, it was un- unbelievable the kind of uh, disgusting things that would just come up so quickly when you leave a whole bunch of dudes, most of them who did not know the Lord in any way, shape, or form, left to their own devices. And there is nothing less than total perversion that came out of many of our mouths during high school. And a lot of you guys know this, right? Students especially, you know it. It's weird in high school because it's, it's at, a, it's at a, an intensity that is really you don't find in a lot of places because you can get fired at a lot of jobs for talking the way a lot of high school students talk. And so you, you're in this environment, and it is oppressive, and it is nothing short of perverted. It is nothing short of perverted. Uh, when I think about these vices in this text, I think of reality TV, um, particularly the kind where you go watch rich people. We've talked about this a couple weeks ago. I mean, reality TV makes its money based on the fact that you and I find this entertaining, okay? We find pervertedness entertaining, people who reject God entertaining. Uh, In verse 5, we have slanderers, people who speak to the detriment, to the ruin of other people, people who are reputation ruiners, people who speak rightly, wrongly, truthfully or not about other people when they're not there to destroy them and to wreck them. and I mean, you just watch any of these reality TV shows. I, I would never, ever be on them simply because I don't want to see what they would say about me behind my back. The haughty and the arrogant. Romans 12 says this. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. I mean, haughtiness and arrogance is thinking more highly, more highly of yourself than you should think. And the reason you might think more highly of yourself because you're comparing yourself to other people, but as soon as you compare yourself to Jesus Christ, there's not one ounce of room for haughtiness or arrogance, but humility. When we see how glorious and how amazing and how servant-hearted and how humble Jesus Christ is, we don't have room left for haughtiness or arrogance. And the more arrogant and haughty we get, it is just showing that is the farther and farther away we are from intimacy with Jesus Christ. Liars. I mean, think about it. Are there people in your life that exemplify these attributes? Are these the people of your life that you care what they think about you? I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's okay to care what people think about you. I care to a great degree what our elders think about me. I care to a great degree what my wife thinks about me. There's, there's a series of people in my life, I care what they think about me. But I try to narrow... Uh, that group of people town to people who love Jesus Christ and love his word. I care what those people think about me a lot. I, I don't want to be seen by them as somebody who is not above reproach or somebody who is, does not have integrity or faithfulness because I know they value those things because I know that those things are important to them. Who, who, who has the heartstrings? Who, who, who is controlling your heart because you care way too much about what they think of you? I think an illustration of this is just a crossroads is every person you let into your life, every person you and by let in, I mean uh, you actually give them access, not just like in an intimate conversation, but like you actually begin to care what they think about you because you want something they have or you think they're cool or whatever else. Every person who comes into your life is a crossroads for either amazing blessing or destruction. Every person. Every person that I put value to what they think of me can either ruin me or they can build me up. And you have to think about friendships like this. You have to. 
Is this person going to be somebody who can build me up? Or is this going to be somebody who's going to tear me down? Is this going to be somebody who's just going to leave me neutrally? But primarily, I want to surround myself with men, with women who love God and care more about what he thinks than what I think. The people we surround ourselves with develop our character the most. This is a great quote I heard. I can't remember where, but the people we surround ourselves with develop our character the most. And then in verse 8, he gives this summary. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land. I mean, David is resolute. I am going to destroy wickedness. If it is in my life, it is in my heart. If it is in my home, if it is in my land, I will destroy it. I mean, I love his good intentions. It's like a husband giving these awesome intention vows to his wife that he does not have a clue how to keep in any way, shape, or form, but the intention is there. And so as a village church, we want to step back and say, my intention, my desire is to not let these things influence me. And if it means turning off TV or stop watching movies, or if it means not hanging out for a season with a group of people because I care desperately far too much about what they think of me, right? Then I'm going to do whatever I can. And I think it's interesting because he understands morning by morning, this is a daily thing. It doesn't just happen. And once you get a certain group or thing out of your life that's dragging you down, I guarantee you this, within 24 hours, something else will be chiming and clamoring for your heart affection and your heart strings to pull them to make you want the things that God doesn't want. I mean, this is a day-by-day, morning-by-morning endeavor that we have to take to put to death. David doesn't say, you know, I'm going to start my administration right, and no wolves are going to come in. No, this is a matter of, I have to understand that if I'm doing something right, if I'm doing something for God, the whole world has got to be against me because I'm against its entire value system and structure. So I'm going to expect consistent, if not daily, opposition. And so daily, David says, it's probably hyperbole to some extent, uh, I'm I'm going to get rid of every evil person, every single evil person. I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. You know, as I got to verse 8, this was a question that was looming in my head. How much blessing have I forfeited due to my unfaithfulness? How many blessings would God have granted me had I not compromised in the following areas? How much responsibility has God not given me because I've proved to have a lack of integrity or character in the private places of my life. Have you thought about that? And when we get to heaven, I'll say, God, what did, what did I miss out on? And he'll say, I would have. I would have granted you this. I would have. But I couldn't trust you. Because in the private places of your life, you didn't live up to it. And I'm not about to put somebody in public places representing me that I can't trust. And sometimes people get their way into leadership positions where they shouldn't be in leadership positions. I don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person. But I wonder how many spirit-filled, God-appointed opportunities did I just pass up? And I wonder, what could have David's full legacy been had he not compromised with Bathsheba? Because a terrible thing happened for the last 20 years of his reign. All you see is trial, 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 trial. Struggle, struggle, struggle. Rebellious children, dead children, fighting children, uh, children trying to take over his kingship constantly. His whole life for the last 20 years was just chaos. And it all started with this moment uh, when he took Bathsheba. And it didn't just start there. That was when he made the public decision, but we know that he made a series of private, private decisions throughout the way that led him to that major decision. Let's, let's not be people who surround ourselves with people who are just yes men and yes women. Whatever you say, whatever you say, oh yeah, your truth, your truth, my truth is my... Let's be people who surround ourselves with godly people. Let's be people who care 
what godly people think about us and what God thinks about us. David stopped this. He had it in the beginning. He did a good job, but he didn't do it morning by morning for the next 40 years. He seemed to do it morning by morning for maybe the next 19 or 20 years. And so you may be 50 years old and you could have been walking with the Lord for the last 30 or 40 years and you may say, my relationship with God is strong. My relationship with God is right where it's supposed to be. Men and women older than you have blown it. Men and women older than you have lost their influence and their privilege in the community of God because they have compromised. And it's very hard, if not impossible, to get back after certain violations of integrity. And so don't take for granted for a moment that because you have been in good standing with God's people or you have this public reputation of anything that you're going to persevere and that your private life or the future private decisions that you make will not eke their way into your public reputation. And I, I believe for Christians, I want us to have good reputations. I don't want us to be perfect because I know we won't be perfect. But I want us to be humble and I want us to spare ourselves from these big, huge things that destroy us, that destroy our kingdoms and that create havoc in our life and everybody around us. Now go back to verse 6. He gives the positive. Who do I want to be around? Sorry, this has been kind of a bummer negative sermon. Uh, I will look with favor on the faithful. Long obedience. These are the people that I want around me, that they may dwell with me. They could, they're not just yes men. These are men who fear God. These are men who will call me out. These are the Nathans who say, David, you're in sin and here's what you did wrong. I mean, David could have killed Nathan when Nathan confronted him, but Nathan wasn't a yes man. Nathan was a man who feared God more than he feared David. So even to the king, he went and he called him and told him how it was. I want men and women like that around me. I don't want people who fear me for whatever reason. I want faithful people who love the Lord, who love his word that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. And this word for minister is where, uh, what the priests would do in the temple, but this is just bigger than that. This is, these are the kind of people that he's going to apply to the 21st century here in, in the village church. These are the kind of people that he's going to do ministry with. These are the kind of people who are going to sit in meetings with and they're going to pray over stuff and they're going to work through stuff and they're going to talk about stuff. They're going to make big decisions, right? These are the people who he wants around him, faithful people, people who have proven themselves, people who are walking with the Lord. That's the kind of people he wants surrounding him. And so if you have big decisions in your life, who do you want to, to help you decide? Who do you want to give you counsel? Ungodly people, unfaithful people, inconsistent people, or faithful people? I want to close, and I want to read you a sad story in 2 Samuel 24. This is the last account of David's life um, before he hands off the kingdom to Solomon. 2 Samuel 24, 11. Actually, verse 10. And the context here is that David uh, was incited by Satan, uh, not controlled, but incited to take a, a census of the people. And the reason you take census is to, a census is to gauge your military strength. And what David was effectively doing is just saying, is my hope is not in the Lord, it's in the number of people I have. And so David is getting ready to take a census, and even his assistant says, David, don't do this. David, don't do this. But David did it anyways. In verse 10, here's what happens, and how would you like it if this was the last recorded event of your life and your legacy after you handed off your kingship? But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. 
And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence into your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. I mean, could you imagine? You messed up royally. And, and, and for some people, man, there is consequences. There are consequences you never, ever, ever intended, nor would you ever want to deal with. And yet we are all one decision away from doing something so stupid with such drastic consequences. And David is in great, I mean, you, you're, you're the leader, right? I mean, you wrote Psalm 101. I'm going to have integrity and blamelessness. I'm going to walk according to the way of the Lord and I'm going to surround myself with people who love the Lord. I'm going to get rid of the evil in the land and, and now you're here at the end of your life and you're like, what is happening to me? My legacy now is that, well, we'll see. And then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of a man. Verse 15, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. Let me just let that linger. And you wake up that morning, and you were David, with all the greatest intentions of a young man, now sitting there, 70 years old, and the corpses of 70,000 people are on your hands. You did that. And we need to be people who count the cost. Maybe, I don't know, Maybe the Lord put this this week because there's somebody here right now who is, who is fixing to do something that they know they should not do. Maybe some of you have an incredibly inappropriate relationship with somebody who's not your husband or your wife and you have been pondering taking that steps. I don't know, but I can tell you this, I've never seen it go well. I've never seen peace with God emerge out of adultery. I've never seen peace with God emerge after somebody steals a lot of money. So I don't, I don't have a clue what God's doing in your heart or why God put this text here, but I do know that it's not an accident. And my prayer for you, if you're in that situation right now, is that you would be preserved by the word of God and that you would repent. And for those of us who are not there and you're in a good place, but by the grace of God, there go we. So let's be faithful. When we see our brother and sister in sin, let's talk to them immediately so that they don't get down the path that could lead them to something bigger. Amen? I want this to be the way, I want you to speak to me if you see that in my heart. And I want to do the same for you. I hope that defines us as a church, our love for God, our love for his word, our desire for integrity and faithfulness. Let's pray together. And Father, I thank you right now that even as we ponder the implications of some horrendous decisions that we could make, I thank you that Jesus Christ has paid the full price for all of our sins for those who would trust in you. God, it's amazing to think that somehow um, David will be with you despite murder and adultery and covering it up and the death of 70,000 people and so much more. But Lord, uh, Jesus took the full payment for his sin. And so I just praise you, God, that right now all the things that I am not, all the things that I lack, all the insecurities I have, all the things that loom over me that I need to be better at or to be more pure or more holy, God, I want you to change my heart. I want you to change our heart. Um, But Lord, I thank you that in the meantime, we are not under your wrath, but under your mercy. We're under your love because we've trusted in Jesus Christ. 
God, I thank you that you are just. You are fully just. And the full punishment that we deserve was put on Jesus. And that there's been no lack of justice whatsoever. And so, Father, we, as a people, we want to say we love you. We are so grateful for your unfailing has said, your love. We are so grateful for your justice and for your mercy. And apart from Jesus Christ, we can't do any of this. And so, Lord, will you protect us from the evil one who incited David? Will you protect us from ourselves? And will you give us the courage and the boldness to love you and care more about what you think about us than what our friends or our workers or our family think about us? And so, God, we submit all this to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.